Welcome to Something to Eat and Something to Read, a podcast for those who love eating and reading and reading about eating. I'm Jermaine Lease, bibliotherapist and psychotherapist, here as always with Sophie Hansen, food writer and author. Hi Sophie. Hi Jermaine, how are you? I'm well. I'm looking forward to um, thinking about eating alone, um, which is our mini-sode this month. And I know that was your idea and it's interesting because I had never really thought about characters eating alone in books or cooking alone and how that might sort of enhance a story or enhance a character. And uh, so you've had me really thinking about my own thoughts on solitary eating as well as when I've read it in books. So I think this will be a very interesting conversation. Yeah, I hope so. I've, I'm, we were just saying before, I'm really enjoying these mini-sodes, this opportunity to, to dive into to a topic and investigate it from lots of different perspectives. And, and I guess this one, it's really funny that the topic, you took it as eating alone and I took it as cooking alone, I guess. That's because we're coming from our different sort of particular, I guess, interests. Or, but I think mm. that the idea of cooking or eating alone, either or, is quite an emotive one, isn't it? It, it really kind of catches catches you um and in books in conversations in ourselves and we did uh, Rebecca May Johnson's wonderful book Small Fires a couple of episodes ago she wrote about it so beautifully when she said one of the things I find most challenging is cooking for myself because it means witnessing my own needs and desires and serving them and I think that really sums up how a lot of us feel about feeding ourselves when it when it is just us what do you think well definitely and it's actually made me think about how this witnessing of your own needs and desires changes with every life stage and it might be thinking I'm thinking about this at the moment because my youngest has just got his first job mm-hmm. actually working at KFC <laughs> and his paycheck is being um delightfully spent on Subway for dinner or KFC like the the takeaway fast food it gives me the horrors at what <laughs> what uh, sustenance he's actually taking in but at the same time, I remember, I think it's that kind of rebellion of being allowed to make your own choices and to go through that phase of, I can use my money to buy the food I want to buy and how that then sort of changes again in your early adulthood when you are setting yourself up alone mm. um, and finding your place in the world and what that actually might mean for what you choose to cook when maybe you've moved out of home or living on by yourself. Um or how you how food kind of plays a role in in sustaining you and then of course you know then you think about going more into having a family or and having to be responsible for providing sustenance for children or 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 having a partner and how you provide sustenance for each other through cooking or food mm-hmm. but that becomes part of your Couple them where that becomes one person's role as the the cook and the other person's role as the receiver or however that gets worked out and then that then going back to that solitary idea of what happens when that full circle happens and perhaps you are left on your own and how is it that you've forgotten how to meet your own needs because there's been so many years of meeting others or is it some other expression of how you really feel about your worthiness or yourself or is it a time of reclaiming yourself and how is that expressed through food? So I 
I, yeah, it's it's really got my mind racing actually about how our own needs and desires are going to change um, mm. throughout our lives. Mm. I love your story about your son and I, I remember the same thing when I, I spent a lot of time in boarding school and then college at uni when I finally got out of like institution cooking and had my own money and you could buy <laughs> yourself dinner. It was It was such a thrill, wasn't it? Like you could just... Mm. buy yourself some chocolate for dinner or whatever it might be and no one's watching and it's just you and it's kind of thrilling I mean that wears off after all because you start to feel sick but um I do I, I really That's understand right. what you're saying well, I'm waiting for that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one of my oldest friends worked at McDonald's as you know 14 year old and I just remember her saying it doesn't take long before you cannot bear the sight or smell of mm. McDonald's again so I'm thinking this might actually be a way to turn him into a healthy eater <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Well, look, all of these things we are going to be diving into today. Uh, Jermaine and I have each chosen two books that we're going to chat about and a few other authors we're going to sneak in along the way. So my first one, I'll kick off, is a book called What We Eat When We Eat Alone, Stories and 100 Recipes by Deborah Madison and Patrick McFarlane. It's quite old. I think it's about 15 years old. And I saw someone was talking about it on Instagram and it caught my attention and so I I got myself a copy and it's really beautifully they're a couple and it's written by Deborah and it's illustrated by Patrick McFarlane so it's a really beautiful book to dive into parts of it are a bit dated I will say but it's essentially it's just fascinated with how people eat and what they cook for themselves and how they feel about eating alone and how some relish in it and some avoid it and some just do it because that's how they live, um, with recipes and ideas for doing it well. But one of the things that I loved most about this book is this investigation in, in the idea of personal food, like the foods that we would only ever make for ourselves when nobody's around and that they might be well outside the borders of what usually passes for, you know, a normal dinner like we spoke about just then. And Deborah writes, the foods that work for one individual in a deep and maybe even psychological way. They might have nourished us as children and now they feed us as adults because our body knows and remember them, um, remembers them. And they have they interview all sorts of people and, you know, a, a quite a well-known chef says that his, his personal food that he has on his own is frozen pound cake shaved into thin pieces and eaten in cold. There's lots <laughs> of cereal, um, crackers dun- dunked in milk, um, cookies drowned in milk, Lots of really interesting, very kind of left to centre meals, and I find that really fascinating. What it is that we we mm. eat when it's just us, when we can completely indulge in in our desires and what we really feel like. And I think that it is such a throws so many clues into someone's character, someone's personality. And in fact, in the first chapter of this book, the co-author Patrick, the illustrator, he talks about a artistic retreat he went on and. A week before, the host of the treat asked everybody to keep a food diary. So seven days, everything they ate and drank over seven days, and then submit it unsigned, anonymous, on arrival. And then on the third day, all the participants were given a somebody else's food diary and they had to read it and then paint a portrait of that person and write a description of a day in the life of that person, not knowing who it was, not trying to guess who it was mm. in the group. But and I, that really captured my imagination mm. and I'm doing a course at the moment, a first novel writing course, which is terrifying but fun, and we're really in the thick of um, fleshing out our main characters and our opposition and our allies and all these things. And and I actually think I might try and do that, write a, a week worth of food and drink for my main character and I think it will really get help me get inside her head because 
it does tell you a lot about yourself and other people, don't you think? Oh, definitely. I think that's a a great way <laughs> to get inside someone's head. It reminds me of, you know, Nikki French talking about in their thriller books, as soon as they know what's inside their character's fridges, they mm. know who their character is. I remember years ago, I used to love Adele Parks. I think she now writes more kind of um, domestic noir type books. But back in the 90s and early 2000s, she wrote, you know, I hate using that word chick lit, but women's fiction kind Mm -hmm. of relationship stories. And one of her books was a character looking in someone else's supermarket trolley while at the supermarket (laughs) and listing off, you know, the low fat yogurt, the all these things, and then making um, this judgment about the owner of that supermarket trolley it always sort of captured me then it's a bit like the book we the Roman Allen book we did about the end oh, of the yes. world remember yes. vacation and there's a whole scene on what they buy from Whole Foods which he used to set up class um more than character there's something yeah that food diary idea of every single meal um, mm. and how it changes over the week which could be very mm-hmm. then relevant to how a mood changes over yeah yeah I thought, I thought that was so Ooh, interesting very and exciting to, Sophie to paint the, a portrait of someone based on their food diary I thought that was pretty amazing as well because <laughs> yeah. you, you really have to like imagine you know what's the look in their eyes what's their facial expression yeah anyway I just thought that that was really interesting throughout the book there is such a through line of of the kinds of foods that people they interview a whole lot of people and there are a lot of Comforting carbs, salt, chili, heaps of tuna, sardines on toast, all those things. And a a big conversation about people, you know, foodies, chefs, people who are very proficient in the kitchen, who want to cook themselves good food but but don't want to spend hours doing it. They would only consider doing that for company, um, which I think is interesting. But I particularly love the chapter entitled Alone All the Time, which does acknowledge that eating and cooking alone isn't, you know, isn't an indulgence and a treat for everybody, you know depends where you are in your life some people it's day after day and, and and keeping up the energy for that so there's recipes you know making big trays of roasted vegetables and grains big pots of soup roasting you know a bone-in chicken thigh or what have you um but I wanted to read out there's this beautiful quote by Judith Jones who was Julia Child's publisher and many others actually and she wrote a book called The Tenth Muse uh, which was all about this cooking and eating alone after Evan, her husband, after decades and partner in in work, he died. And at first she doubted that she could ever cook again and enjoy cooking again. But then what she did was she enacted what they did every day as a daily ritual, cooking and eating together at the table. And she said, when at last I sit down and light the candles, the place across from me is no longer empty, which is pretty amazing. But um, anyway, it's a great, it's a really good book and it really Mm. got me thinking about what I make for myself when I'm alone, what my quirky personal foods might be it's, if I am at my home on my own and there's good bread I will have marmalade toast for dinner <laughs> that's my favorite <laughs> what about you is there any um that you're prepared to share any weird quirky personal foods that you make just for yourself when no one's looking <laughs> I know when um you mentioned this earlier I was thinking like how rare it is at the moment that I'm yeah. actually home alone I might it might just be two of us or but you know or three of us or that actually being at home alone and I think for me it is things like toasties or crumpets mm-hmm. yeah and a cup of tea or eggs it is kind of the breakfast foods which is really interesting isn't it about yeah. the like you know 
you were saying that the in your book that um there's lots of cereal and milk and or crackers in coffee or cookies drowned in milk and I mean there is something very nursery food like there isn't there something very well maybe there's some kind of nurturing of an inner inner child in us to be going back to the marmalade and bread or the eggs yeah and I guess there's also that element of convenience isn't there like if you are at home you might not want to spend you know 45 minutes cooking or you might I mean that would be fabulous act of self-care but there's also that idea of you know you might not want to that's cereal so easy toast's easy the quick pasta is easy um so I guess it's that's part of it too what about you what's your book well my first book is uh not really about cooking at all which is as you were saying in the beginning that I seem to have thought about eating on our own more so than cooking on our own which as you say says something about (laughs) the angles we're both coming from so I guess yeah the solitary eating just got me thinking about solitary just Mm -hmm. having to be on your own and one of my favorite books a book I have prescribed many times a book I wrote about in my book as well is called Gift from the Sea by Anne Morrow Lindbergh, Mm. uh, written in the 1950s. So relevant, I think, to being a woman today. She was married to Charles Lindbergh, the American aviator, you know, who made the first nonstop flight from New York to Paris in 1927. They got married in 1929 and she became his co-pilot and um, radio operator, actually. She's obviously extremely adventurous the first American woman to get a glider's license. I didn't really know. And and they had five children. And famously, their oldest child was kidnapped in the early 30s and Mm. killed. God, I didn't know that at all. Do you remember? I I remember as a kid hearing about the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. And it was one of those, apparently, it was very common for wealthy American families to have children kidnapped during the Depression. And then obviously um, with the idea of having to pay a ransom. And I think they never really worked out what happened here because they did find his body 10 weeks later. So horrific. This book is nothing nothing about her backstory in this memoir, this book of essays, but it is all about being a woman in different stages of life and how you hold on to yourself. And for her, you hold on to yourself through solitude. You know, the cure for loneliness for her was to have some solitude. Yeah, it was published in 1955. It's been in print ever since and was actually on the New York Times bestseller list for 80 weeks. What's so lovely is that she was writing because she was trying to look for her own, well, work out her own balance in life in the midst of midlife, in the midst of growing children, husband running a family, working. So she took herself away um, for two weeks to a small island off Florida to just think and be. And she said she was looking for her essential self, the person she was before marriage and children and the person she would be after they left. So she'd walk the beach each day and collect shells and each essay is about the shells she finds and what that represents in her life, like whether that be marriage or family or being a mother, or her work, or just the shape of her life at that time. So through the shells as the metaphor, she kind of explores each part of herself. There's a copy I have, has like a little afterward in it, 20 years after the book was first published, where she's written, 
The original astonishment remains, never quite dimmed over the years, that a book of essays written to work out my own problems should have spoken to so many other women. You know, and it still does, I think. It's a book I've also given friends as gifts at this um, stage of life where children are kind of uh, finishing school and life is moving into a whole other stage of family. And I, I reread it uh, again just before our talk. And again, I just, it's only small. It's like 100 pages or something. And, and it, it just, it's got a lot of wisdom in it. So it is learning. I think the point of her book is about the importance of learning to be alone and to witness your own needs and desires to keep on theme with this actually being about food. I have a quote that has food in it. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> eating in it, I should say. For a full day and two nights I have been alone. I lay on the beach under the stars at night alone. I made my breakfast alone. Alone I watched the gulls at the end of the pier dip and wheel and dive for the scraps I threw them. A morning's work at my desk and then a late picnic lunch alone on the beach. And it seemed to me, separated from my own species, that I was nearer to others. You know, she talks about um, women being hungry and not knowing what they're hungry for. You know, we fill up the void with endless distractions, always at hand, unnecessary errands, compulsive duties, social niceties. Suddenly the spring is dry, the well is empty. Hunger cannot, of course, be fed merely by a feeling of indispensability. Even purposeful giving must have some source that refills it. The milk in the breast must be replenished by food taken into the body. If it is women's function to give, she must be replenished too. But how? Um, mm. And I think that brings into focus for me that the, the feeding or the cooking for yourself, the nurturing, it does all come back to how how we've grown physically, emotionally, mentally from birth, which is through milk, you know, through that all comes through milk. And I thought it was really interesting how she returns to your job might be feeding a baby, but then how do you feed yourself to be able to mm. feed a baby? I guess it just made me think about this alone time being about replenishment. It also made me think about how I haven't really thought about that so much with food, but I do with tea. Like I have always been very good at taking alone time with a cup of tea every day no matter how busy it is to take 10 minutes to sit with mm. tea the ritual of making myself a cup of tea I think feels like a witnessing of a need but yeah I don't know what what does that all bring up for you I love I mean I definitely want to seek out this book myself and I love we were literally just talking about this actually before about you asked me how I was and I said oh I'm good but I've just spent five days away I've been running cooking classes, I've been at my 30-year school reunion, I've been running, I hosted a workshop, all sorts of things. Like it's been great, but every day for five days I've been on, like really switched on, and I'm so happy to be quietly at home. I've got two days where I'm not going to town at all, and that's recharging my batteries. Lots of alone time. Tom's at school, my husband's working, I'm working, but, you know, it's just me in the house quietly on my own, and I guess that makes me an introvert, I think. That's the definition, isn't it? If you get your energy, you recharge by by quiet times and solitude. Definitely solitude can be replenishing. For, for me, it's, it is, it's a treat, like it's a, it's a bit of a luxury, you know, because my life I'm, where I am right now is, is lots of busyness, like, you know, kids, life, work, whatever. But I think feeding ourselves, whether it's, you know, a day of quiet, quietness, 
big cup of tea uh, or I mean I do also really try and make myself a, a nice lunch every day even if it's just a boiled egg and some greens or whatever I do actually do try and do that and I really enjoy my lunch like I always make myself something quite nice and I think that I, I hope you know that's a way of witnessing my needs and, and looking after myself but um, mm. yeah I mean it's just everyone's different right and we all recharge and and um, look after ourselves in different ways but I think yeah whether it's a sitting and drinking your whole cup of tea not letting it having half of it and rushing off and doing something else that's cold and, or making yourself a nice lunch or just knowing that you need to have two days um, of quietness yeah it's good to be able to do that and it's a luxury to be able to do that I'm fully aware of that too well speaking of luxuries and pleasures um, I'm going to jump onto my next book which is of course mm. to, for me it had to be Nigella and her book <laughs> uh, Cook Eat Repeat which I really do love because I love the way she writes and it's very heavy on writing and she writes there's a particular innocence a particular purity about cooking just for oneself in that it rests cooking away from being an act of service there's less ego involved in cooking for oneself and that is enormously liberating and I really love that too like I often will try new things I'll try a new flavor combination or a little technique you know like if you if you're nervous about making soufflés get them right just making for yourself or whatever it might be and it is really liberating because if it's a complete failure, you've still got something to eat and it doesn't matter, you know, there's no no one around you that you can, not that you should anyway, but that you should be feeling funny having seen you fail or whatever it might be. Again, not that we've talked about this a lot, failures in the kitchen are all good and learning experiences at the end of the day, it's just food. But she does advise people who lack confidence in the kitchen to cook for themselves, to take away the burden, to impress or perform and just cook things that make sense to you that appeal to your tastes, taking risks, knowing that it doesn't matter if they don't work out. She she gives a creme caramel for one recipe and she writes, creme caramel is just such a ridiculous thing to be making for oneself <laughs> and therein lies the gift of it. And I have to say I've never actually done that. I've never made myself a pudding just for one. I love the idea of it. Like it really does sound mm. like what a treat for yourself. You'd just you'd be feeling pretty like you've topped the self-care top self-care points that week but I do love that and she's she has long been advocating that we especially women you know we do invest so much time in cooking for others we should invest in ourselves as well and she talks in the book a little bit about how she did this while her husband was dying of throat cancer and how cooking for her was a good way to interrupt anxiety and I think a lot of us feel that you know if you're feeling anxious or mm everything's out of control you know just holding a knife in your hand and chopping something or smelling um you know rubbing lemon zest into sugar to make a pound cake that you might freeze later and great who knows these are all good things to do and she also does make the good point that solo eating is the perfect opportunity to indulge in more expensive tastes so you know you might have a thing for caviar but you can't afford to buy caviar for dinner party for 20 so but you might make buy yourself a little tin and make some little blinis and have them for yourself so I think Nigella reminds us always that our own needs um, and desires are definitely worth being witnessed and um, looked after. Have you got that book, that Cook, Eat, Repeat, one of hers? I do, yeah. I, I really like that book as well. And it just reminded me of uh, years ago being at the counter of a fishmonger and a woman in her 80s sort of being the person in front of me and she was buying herself prawns and she turned to, it was a Friday and she turned to me and she said oh I always make myself a prawn cocktail on a Friday oh. evening I just stayed with me because I, I remember thinking at the time how wonderful to 
you know, she's on her own. Well, I assume she's on her own. The way she said it sounded very much like this is my thing I do for myself and made, you know, it, it was a reminder, like it's, the, it's a celebratory day, the end of the week or the start of the weekend and uh, it just has that same feeling of indulgence that you can do on your own. Yeah, like L'Oreal said, you're worth it. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I, I think I'd like to adopt something like that, like a Friday night prawn cocktail or something. I thought, oh, that's great. I'm not sure. I've never been a massive yeah. caviar person. To be honest, I've never really had much opportunity to eat caviar. But I no, do think yeah. looking after yourself like that, if that's something that makes you happy or just taking yourself out for a, a really nice breakfast or lunch or dinner or what have you. Yeah. I, when I travel for work, um, I love eating in restaurants on my own. I really do. I take my book. Yeah. I find that highly pleasurable. But what about you? Do you ever, is there anything that you might um, indulge yourself in? Would you ever make yourself a creme caramel for one? No, I don't. I think I would find that stressful. I think my indulging myself would be taking myself out for mm-hmm. a meal, which I do. Like I will take myself out for breakfast or for lunch. Yeah, I think I, I love that too. And I think I love the, it's a sense of being cared for. Someone else is making the food for you perhaps. Yeah. But a sense of feeling in the world while you're still in your own space. Mm-hmm. Um, and funnily enough, my second choice is all about that. Oh, um, let's hear it. Yes, this is a fiction novel. It's called Whereabouts by Yumpa Lahiri. I think this is her fourth book. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning author who so talented I actually I adore this novel too it's another slim novel as well and again I reread it before us meeting and it Mm. was just as delightful rereading it again uh it's and and again (laughs) like my first choice this entire story is about solitude and finding your way through um self-reflection and being alone Jumpa moved to Italy she's a I think she was born in England and sort of grew up in America. And then she and her family, her husband and two children moved to Italy and she just loved everything Italian. And she learned to speak fluent Italian so fluently that um, she actually, this is the first book she originally wrote in Italian. And then she translated it herself back into English. Anyway, it's about a a single middle-aged writer and literature professor who's lived in the same little Italian city all her life. You don't ever find out which Italian town this is. In a series of chapters that sort of take the course over a year, she explores the way she locates herself in the world. And so all the chapters are kind of like in the trattoria, you know, in the kitchen, in the bedroom, on the balcony, that sort of thing. And it's actually was described by a critic as the literary equivalent to slow cooking. Yeah, and I, I thought it was really interesting because it's not there's not a lot of again there's not a lot of food in there, but there is something about the slowly putting ingredients together, putting your mind together, thinking, reflecting, and coming up with this dish of life at the end, and how you kind of move through it. I guess she finds her way forward often through just observing others, and this happens also while eating alone. Uh, so one of the quotes I love is, I often have lunch at a trattoria close to my house. I eat alone next to others eating alone. There are people I don't know, though I frequently encounter a familiar face. And she then sort of goes on to think about the stories behind these people having their lunch on their own. And another time 
when she's having lunch in a, at a playground. I look for a place to sit and find a spot in the playground where they deal drugs at night, but at this time of day, it's bursting with kids, parents, dogs, and also a few people on their own like me. But today, I don't feel even slightly alone. I hear the babble of people as they chatter, on and on. I'm amazed at our impulse to express ourselves, explain ourselves, tell stories to one another. The simple sandwich I always get amazes me too. As I eat it, as my body bakes in the sun that pours down on my neighbourhood, each bite, feeling sacred, reminds me that I'm not forsaken. You know, the sandwich that sort of fulfills her needs and desires and she's a witness to those needs and desires as well, which then reminded me of this fantastic essay in The New Yorker by Adam Gopnik, written years ago, but I'll put the link up in mm. our show notes. But he writes this whole essay about food in fiction. Oh. And I think you'll really love because he talks about the different, the reasons for putting food in fiction. He sort of concludes it with the space between imaginary food in books and real food is the space where reading happens. The act of reading is always a matter of a task begun as much as of a message understood. Something that begins on the flat surface, counter or page, then gets stirred and chopped and blended until what we make in the end is a dish or a story all our own. Yeah, which I thought an interesting way to bring our reading and cooking (laughs) interests together. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm definitely going to check out that article because as we've talked about a lot in this podcast, my favourite parts of any fiction book that I read is when people are at the table or eating or cooking. Yeah, that's great. Mm. Well, I've two more books to add to my um, ever-growing list of books that I want to read. Thank you, Jermaine. Everything we've talked about comes back to this idea, and I know that the whole concept of self-care can be sound a bit icky, but um, I do think cooking or eating alone is an act of looking after ourselves. It's an act of self-care and witnessing our needs. I I wanted to just before we finish mention, I think I I felt I had to mention Ella Risbridger who writes a lot about this and um, in her wonderful book, her first book, Midnight Chicken, she writes about the third worst night of her life and she'd come home after a really hard day and she hadn't eaten properly for days and she was sick of syrupy double shot coffees instead of supper. I think this is at the time towards the end of her partner, his life at that time, and she writes, somehow I managed to dig out half a tablet of Valium from the debris of the medicine cabinet and then, miracle of miracles, a tin of cream, hinds of tomato from the chaos of the kitchen cupboard, and I took the Valium and heated up the soup gently over a low flame and poured it into a mug and took it to bed with a hunk of stale bread toasted and laden with butter. I held the mug mug of soup in my two hands and watched the steam rise from the surface as I breathed and sipped it slowly, dipping in the toast and not minding when the butter dripped golden onto the sheets. It was two in the morning and I was eating soup in bed and I felt better. Mm. And I love that, you know, a mug of tinned soup with buttered toast on your own terms was that was absolutely an act of self-care for Ella and she, she, right, she felt better because of it. There's something about soup and toast, I think, that does make us feel better, don't you think? Well, yeah, I wonder. It's something that's very easily digestible, isn't it? Back to that nursery yeah. food idea, yeah. maybe. Mm. <laughs> and then I just wanted to finish, I'm not, and I'm being cheeky, I'm going to squeeze one more person in because I wanted to mention Helen Garner, who 
you know, we all know and love as an extraordinary <laughs> writer and woman that she is. But in a short story she wrote called Some Furniture, which came from a book mum gave me called Kitchen Table Memoirs. She writes about oh. the time about the age uh, 2000. She'd come back from to Sydney. She was single again and she was renting a small flat that did not have a kitchen table. She writes, Women on their own can easily get into the habit of standing at the open fridge door and dining on a cold boiled potato. I was determined to be elegant in my solitude. So she goes on and on this search for the perfect table and eventually a friend makes her a really beautiful pale timber wooden table. She says, it was so beautiful and so expensive that in my demoralised state I felt unworthy to sit at, but I forced myself. I learned to eat dainty salads off it, to nibble at fillets of fish steamed in ginger. This would be my single life. So for her, it was all about the table, finding the right table mm. and sitting at that and, and witnessing her needs again, which I really liked. So yeah. I do think a good kitchen table that, well, doesn't have to be fancy, but a good place where you can sit and be comfortable yeah. and enjoy your meals is really important with a candle. <laughs> yeah, it's the mood, isn't it? It creates a whole mood around mm. food. And an occasion, well. you know, it's not just standing at the fridge door, you know, which we've all done when we're just hungry and food is fuel and sometimes yeah. food is just fuel. But making it an occasion, witnessing that need yourself, I think is is such a nourishing thing to do. It reminds me actually of Jeanette Winterson and Christmas Days, you know, yet again. I mentioned yes. Christmas Days. But her tradition of um, every Christmas Eve having smoked salmon on dark rye bread with a glass of champagne while listening to the carols, that there's this ceremony and occasion is all around your own needs and wishes and doesn't and just has to be shared with your your you know your yes you're worthy of celebrating those things too whether that be at the the special kitchen table or yeah creating that celebratory mood or like my old lady at the buying prawns for a cocktail every friday night and this whole and we this comes up in every episode we do isn't it this idea of creating rituals around food and I I love the idea of creating your own rituals just and there's nobody else's needs or wants or preferences to take into account like if you just want to sit at your table and have that perfect prawn cocktail and a glass of champagne how heavenly like that just to me sounds so nice so I guess there's a real power in that isn't it like taking that power yourself and creating these moments which are in our you know they're all within reach really like doesn't have to be caviar or prawns or champagne it can be just a really good piece of bread and marmalade to be conscious (laughs) doesn't it yes yeah you just need to be consciously choosing to do it for you yes yeah. Well, I'm going to consciously choose to go make myself a really nice coffee now. <laughs> now we have <laughs> come to the end of our mini-sode, which is not so mini today. We've spoken for a bit longer. No. Sorry, everybody. Um, but is there anything else you wanted to add, Jermaine, before we sign off for today? Well, we've covered a lot. So yes. hopefully there's a whole lot of good book recommendations um, and new food ideas in there for everyone, all the listeners. Yeah, and if anyone does have a ritual of their own similar to the prawn cocktail story or, or anything like that, we would love to hear them. Um, please leave a, mm. a comment on our Substack or our Instagram. I, I'm really fascinated to know how people make their own little occasions and traditions a la Jeanette Winterson or what have you. We all need all yeah, – we, we need more inspiration of, like that. I was just thinking as well it's another form of consciousness raising, isn't it, mm. when you start reading more about people who consciously do these things for themselves. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I would love to hear it. Well, thank you, Jermaine, as always. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thank you, Christy, our producer. And yeah, please send us in your letters. We're always we're always looking for letters for issues or problems or what have you that we can prescribe books and recipes for. But for yeah. now, let's go and have something lovely mm. on our own. <laughs> That's right. I was just thinking I'm going to do a cup of tea in the garden. You're going to make a cup of coffee and... Uh, and stoke up the fire. It's again. freezing here today. Uh, that's another reason I need a cup of coffee just to warm up my poor hands. <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll be back soon. Yeah, see you then. Sometimes I to thinking I ought to take up drinking just to drown out all these memories Maybe I could down a whiskey bottle and head out on the highway just to see if it'll bring some peace But I ain't a drinking girl I'm just a Small town woman trying to find my way in a lonesome world. And I ain't a whiskey girl, I'm just a small town woman trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world. I'm 
just a small town lady trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world. I'm just a small town woman trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world.